The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Monday, February 3rd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Iowa caucuses are tonight. Caucai! The quarterly, quarterly, let's say every four-year event, will be picked over for symbolism, the momentum-conferring qualities, and their inherent drama. Drama that depends on a mass agreement, a conspiracy even, that they are symbolic and momentum-conferring. The caucuses, an onerous and undemocratic process that doesn't utilize a secret ballot or open themselves up to people who work nights or are unhealthy, who can't get a ride, will determine, drum roll please, okay, no drum, no problem, because it's 0.8% of the total Democratic delegates awarded in this race. It is basically the equivalent of less than one play from scrimmage during last night's Super Bowl. So last night's Super Bowl began with a run, two incompletions, and a Kansas City punt. That's it. Chiefs are going to lose. And actually, that series of plays is almost four times the sample size of what Iowa offers us. It strikes me as bizarre, daffy even, that the news media collude in the fiction that Iowa is so important and so determinative. News media, which in other areas takes pains to properly contextualize every story with phrases like Mr. Weinstein denies the charges or Kanye described as engaging in what critics call erratic behavior. But when it comes to the caucuses, caucai, sometimes there's a little wink at the hype and the spectacle, but no media organization dares say this is a crazy over-analysis of the tiniest glimpse of a real-life development. Even the phrase winning the Iowa caucus, you win a delegate to the state convention, which probably but won't necessarily mean a delegate to the national convention, and it's all proportional, so the relative gain from one candidate over the others in the field won't even be one play in the Super Bowl. The percentage equivalent would be Patrick Mahomes takes the snap, steps back two steps, we don't know if he's going to hand off or pass. Go on that. Who's going to win the Super Bowl? Oh, wait. We're going live here now. Elizabeth Warren inspiring her supporters in Ames before the big event. That's what we need today. We need energy. We need oneness, dog. We need to be remembered. Let's go. Let's go. I'm sorry. That was uh, Kansas City defensive player, the Honey Badger, Tyron Matthew. And you know, sports media would have been standing on stronger and firmer ground if it took that honey badger speech and say, oh, therefore, Kansas City has momentum and is going to win. Stronger ground than the news media will when they call someone who gets the most delegates the winner of Iowa tonight. Except, of course, with the media, the pronouncement is what really matters. So a one delegate lead out of Iowa is winning Iowa and Iowa is momentum and momentum is key to fundraising excitement and expectations and it all becomes reality. I suppose an actual vote with actual voters or at least actual voters that can get a ride and can hire a sitter and can spare a couple hours. I suppose that's better than no vote at all. And it's not like I won't be paying any attention to Iowa. I can't help it. I don't have enough of the honey badger in me. I can't not care. 
on the show today, a Super Bowl moment for the ages. But first, let's talk actual politics with a politician actually elected who has enacted policies that actually have an impact. Oregon Governor Kate Brown is using her state as a testing grounds for a lot of interesting progressive policies. They're grounded in aspiration, but also in the reality of what a government can do and how to balance disruption with progress. Kate Brown, up next. Kate Brown is the 38th governor of Oregon. Rather than a large introduction, I want to get to the issues. And I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about voter registration. I want to talk about an interesting experiment that the state is doing with rent control. And I want to talk about Governor Brown's theories of governance. How's that sound to you, Governor Brown? Sounds very fascinating. Doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> After we're all done, you tell me if that was the case. So first of all, Oregon, your state, ranks first in the U.S. for ease of voting. And among the initiatives are some things that some other states do, like automatic voter registration and a very aggressive and longstanding vote-by-mail system. But also, can you fill me in on this? Can 16-year-olds vote in Oregon? No, but we register them to vote. Uh-huh. So that's the next conversation, I think, and it's a one worth having. But I have to tell you, we actually wrote the playbook on automatic voter registration. It was legislation I crafted when I was Secretary of State. We lost it on the Senate floor by one vote, came back, was able to get it passed in the Senate, and uh, we have one of the highest voter turnout rates in the country. And, of course, we are seeing probably the second highest rate in terms of people of color registered. So it's really brought in a more diverse voting population, and it allows more Oregonians to have their voices be heard, and that's a really good thing. So as you explain it to me, a fan of democracy and a generally progressive person, I say to myself, well, who could object to that? But I find as I study the issue that a lot of times the people who oppose aggressive new ways to register voters and allow people to vote are the people who have benefited from the old system, which is sometimes even entrenched Democrats. So tell me about what you had to deal with in order to convince the people who had the vote votes to pass this? The biggest argument we had was around the security and the integrity of the system. Folks were worried that non-citizens would be registered to vote, and folks were worried that the system wouldn't be secure. The harsh reality is that it has been very solid in terms of the integrity of the system, and we haven't had anyone registered that wasn't supposed to be. I think what you're saying is, yes, folks who tend to run conservative, who've been part of the system, are unlikely to support these types of changes. One of the questions we often got was, well, it's already pretty easy to register because you can register online. Why would you make it easier to register to vote? I'm like, why wouldn't we? Mm-hmm. We want this to be as easy as possible so that every eligible Oregonian Every eligible American will participate. You're a pioneer. Another governor, maybe a Democratic governor, maybe a progressive Republican governor, says, I'd like to pass this. What are some of the arguments that you made to get over the hurdles? Or was it just a matter of there are no arguments that you can make with certain entrenched interests, so all you have to do is beat them at the election box, and then you get your policies through? 
Well, what I thought was most interesting is that our Republicans opposed it when it was in its bill form. I got it signed into law. We implemented it. And a year or two later, the next Republican Secretary of State was elected, and he embraced the concept wholeheartedly. So it was definitely partisan during the legislative mm-hmm. time frame, but a Republican Secretary of State worked really hard to implement it. We now have another Republican Secretary of State, and she's doing a great job implementing it. And I'm pleased to see, I think we've had 17 or 18 other states, including Washington, D.C., move forward with some type of automatic voter registration. It's really the new modern motor voter. And it seems to me a norm that once people have, once the voters have, they're not going to want to let it go. Oh, I want the more inconvenient thing rather than the convenient thing. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's why we're, um, I'm so supportive, frankly, of our work around vote at home or vote by mail. It's substantially more convenient. It's as secure as polling place voting. And frankly, it's substantially more cost effective. So it makes voting much more accessible for folks who are in wheelchairs, for folks who are in New York City, as opposed to having to drive or take a bus somewhere. Wow, can you imagine your envelope showing up on your post office box or at your doorstep in your mailbox with your ballot in it? It's amazing. It's extraordinary. (laughs) And there's been no turning back. So I want to ask you about 16-year-old voting. I'm so intrigued by the idea that we actually don't usually interview state representatives on the show, but we had Shemaya Fagan on. She talked about it. From my reading of it, this was presented to you as an idea that others had and you signed on to it, but you weren't necessarily a champion of it. But you tell me what your evolution was and what convinced you that it's a good idea if that indeed is your stance. At first I was like, "Mm, I don't think we should allow 16-year-olds to do that. And then if we are making public policy based on data, what we know is this, that if you can gauge young people, high schoolers, middle students, In civic engagement, if you engage them then, they get hooked for life. And that's what we want. We want our students, frankly, hooked on civic engagement for life. It will produce a much more civically engaged electorate. So there was no sort of concrete, we know these kids can read, right? We know they have access to information. Why shouldn't we allow 16-year-olds to vote? That's what it came down to for me. Well, what you're saying there reminds me of the idea that states are a laboratory for democracy. You seem to be conducting the lab and having those uh, Bunsen burners burning there in terms of elections. But what about in terms of housing? Oregon passed the first statewide rent control law. What would the rent controls be? Let me just take a step back. Oregon is one of the many states, I think all of us in the West, that are struggling with affordable housing issues. We underbuilt between 2000 and 2015, I think over 150,000 units. Because of the incredible beauty and bounty of Oregon, we are a state that sees a lot of folks moving into 
And we are really struggling to tackle these issues. This is also a time frame when the federal government has basically ripped the rug out from underneath the states in terms of affordable housing policy. So the states are having to step up in ways that we never have before. Since I've become governor, we've invested over a half a billion dollars in affordable housing, homelessness prevention, and rental assistance. Just to give you perspective, in the 161 years prior of Oregon history, we never invested that entire amount. And unfortunately, it is only the tip of the iceberg. So we are looking at all the tools that we have, including, you know, partnerships with the private sector, and also, frankly, looking at policy changes, capping rent so that folks who are living in rental units don't get kicked out in the streets made sense. We did it in a way that ensured that landlords would have a level of flexibility. Right. And I would imagine for it to work, you'd have to pour a lot of money into public transportation too. We are. We continue to do that. In 2017, passed uh, the largest transportation package since the Johnson era. That would be President Johnson and... (laughs) Lyndon, not Andrew. Correct. Correct. Thank you. Uh, Good catch. And for the first time ever, we made a statewide investment in public transit. We invested statewide in both pedestrian and bicycle pathways. And we're continuing to invest heavily in light rail. We have a great light rail system in the Portland metropolitan area, as well as a bus system. It certainly, I would say, needs some updating and some excitement. We're going to have to make buses sexy, but we have a solid bus system in the Portland metropolitan area. In New York, we have USB chargers on the bus. I don't know if you have them out there. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) get some. (laughs) My security are not very excited about me traveling on the bus these days. Well, Bloomberg took the subway every day. That's more dangerous. Yes, but uh, (laughs) it's New York City. Yeah. I just want to ask you this about rent control. So, and laboratories of democracy, Bernie Sanders has unveiled a national rent control idea. And it strikes me as very aggressive to try that on a national level where you're the only state first trying it even on the state level. But beyond that, do you have any thoughts on a national plan, just given the, I guess, care and attention that you gave to a state plan that is, in fact, three times the latitude as Senator Sanders' national plan? I just think this is one of those circumstances, these issues, that a one-size-fits-all approach may not be successful. And, you know, his proposal might work in a state like California, but I'm not sure it's going to work in a place like Kansas. Do we have a housing crisis in Oregon? Do we have one in California? Do we have one in Washington? Yes. I can probably say that about all the Western states. I don't have enough a sense of, you know, what's happening in Ohio. I am not sure that a one-size-fits-all makes sense in the rental markets. So I want to underline this for listeners, and you did not come out with a scathing critique of Bernie Sanders' plan, but people should know you are the one governor who has tried it, and the way you tried it is much, much more cautiously than what Bernie Sanders is prescribing for everyone. Yes, I think that's a fair analysis. Okay. (laughs) Given that you know these branches of government really well and the levers of government, does that inform 
how big a swing you take. Because here on the national stage, we're confronted with the proposition that you've got to propose these amazingly broad choices. And if the legislature doesn't go along with it, then you're you know, hemming in your ambition. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, just because you know how all these systems of government really work. So I think there are times when it makes sense uh, to go full throttle. And the best example I can give of that is the automatic voter registration legislation. Mm -hmm. I knew for it to have the impact, i.e., you know, 17 states and D.C. to follow, that we had to do it sort of the the best way, right? The most pure way. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we did. As we are tackling climate change through a cap and trade system, we are having to take a maybe this statewide approach doesn't make sense. And we're looking at treating certain regions of the state, our very rural regions, different than our urban regions. And so I think it really depends upon the policies and on the pragmatics of both passage and implementation. And I think for me as a governor, it's how do you figure out when is the right time to be perfect Mm -hmm. or when do you decide that this is good enough? Right. In 2016, you endorsed Hillary Clinton for president. You haven't endorsed yet this this time around. Am I right about that? That is correct. Yeah. What the- I am waiting to go full support of whoever the Democratic nominee is. Okay. So what are you looking for out of the nominee? What are huh. your major criteria? <laughs> Number one, anybody who can beat Trump. Mm-hmm. Let me stop you there. How do you determine that? Do you look at polls? Do you take into account their position on the ideological spectrum? Is it something else? Well, Oregon is a late primary state. Our yeah, uh, primary is mid-May. We certainly had some conversations about moving the primary up. I anticipate by the time we get around that we will have a very likely nominee. I could be wrong. But I have to tell you, from everything I've been reading and having grown up in the Midwest, I know that those Iowa voters, I'm sure they're wringing their hands and literally pulling their hair out uh, to determine which one of these candidates they think can best beat Trump. And that's not happening just in Iowa. Hopefully it's happening in South Carolina and California and New Hampshire and in the South. I mean, it's like... I believe very strongly that my Democrats across the country understand that this is truly the most important election of our lifetime and are going to do everything they can to pick the right candidate. All right. Last question. What's your favorite Portlandia sketch? You know, my job as the governor of Oregon is to make sure it is a place where every Oregonian can achieve their full potential and that we build a better Oregon for everyone. I love having Portlandia, Grimm, all the other shows that are coming to film in Portland. We love having folks there and want to continue to build the industry. We welcome them and look forward to having uh, more shows be filmed in the amazing, awesome, gorgeous place that Oregon is. That was not an answer. I mean, that was an answer. That was like not an answer to my question. I only watched it once, man. I was like, I am not. I'm not a TV soul. What can I say? Kate Brown is the governor of the state of Oregon, the fine state of Oregon. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is great. 
And now the spiel. We, as a nation, have struggled with the question of what to do with a president who calls his deeply flawed and likely criminal behavior not just a mistake or a misstep, but perfect. As a nation, tonight we officially gather together to pick a challenger to President Trump for the first time. And by as a nation, I mean less than 0.1% of the actual nation. That's who will be heading to the Iowa caucuses. Okay. And within our nation, there are in fact sub-nations, we are told. Lately, these nations have been increasing in prevalence. You hear of Red Sox Nation and Raider Nation, Steeler Nation, Cardinal Nation. In fact, there are 573 federally recognized Indian nations, Native American nations. Though when you hear someone reference Seminole Nation, it's usually the college sports nation, not the actual nation of Seminole people. But today, I was pleased to hear that there would be one nation that doesn't actually think of itself as a nation. As the clock ticked down in Super Bowl 54, the Kansas City Chief announcer, Mitch Holtis, exalted. The game is over, and the Chiefs' kingdom has firmly planted its flag on top of football's highest summit. The Kansas City Chiefs are champions of Super Bowl 54. Final score, Kansas City 31, San Francisco 20. And Chiefs' kingdom, get ready to welcome your champions. Chiefs' kingdom. They have a kingdom. Who knew? I guess I should have. What's odd about the king planting a flag on the highest summit is this that Chiefs as a name is one of the few sports monikers where the nickname actually describes the head of a type of government. But that government is not, in fact, a kingdom. The Kansas City Royals, the Sacramento or L.A. Kings, the Old Dominion Monarchs, they could have a kingdom. A chief would lead a chiefdom or a clan, although I can understand why you wouldn't want to brand yourself as a clan, though there's a group of fans that does the tomahawk chop without apology. The kingdom... Who knew there was a kingdom afoot? Were they perhaps a principality upon winning the AFC championship game? Perhaps when they qualified for a first round bye, they were a duchy. Now, I would recommend to the chiefs if they want to constitute themselves, reconstitute themselves, I guess, now that they're a kingdom, as a chiefdom, they could choose, say, pan-tribal sodality, common among the Great Plains in areas that would later become Kansas or Missouri, a pan-tribal sodality. That's, that's maybe the way to go. This wasn't the only thing that was arresting to the ears from the lips of Mitch Holtis. Andy Reid made a decision to come to Kansas City. Everything changed within a week. And in seven years, they have become one of the most popular professional teams in the world with Patrick Mahomes and this wonderful team. You've said it many times, Mitch, when he came, that was the pebble in the pond. And that pebble in the pond has turned into an ocean of the sweet nectar. Let's think about this for a minute. Andy Reid as the pebble that causes the ripple. If you're familiar with Coach Reid's stature, this would be a small pebble the size of a large pebble. But to posit that the body of water in play has turned into a nectar, well, I've got to think that the sweetness of the nectar wouldn't be the most salient aspect of this transmogrification. Navigability would be, and I have got to think, call me crazy, but the viscosity of the nectar would contravene the ocean-going properties of standard ocean water, by which I mean 
sweet nectar might not ripple. I, of course, speak of capillary waves and I've done the calculations, but I think Mitch Holtis might want to amend his pronouncement to say, Andy Reid, Coach Andy Reid, the inciting incident, much like the pebble that Coach Reid represents. He, of course, being the angular frequency, which is equal to the surface tension divided by P, the density of the heavier fluid, which in our analogy correlates to roster construction, times the absolute value of the wave number cubed, wave number, of course, being the steady leadership of the Hunt family. He could have said that, been on stronger ripple ground. This is really something to ponder about Chiefs Nation, sorry, Chiefs Kingdom. And they're said to be one of the most popular franchises, uh, kingdoms, in all of fandom. They're like the Holy Roman Empire of figurative kingdoms in terms of reach and popularity, villagers in Mozambique, herdsmen on the Mongolian steppe, Cypriot fishermen, all hail the chiefs of Kansas City. They count themselves loyal to the Kansas City chiefs and the kingdom thereof, even as with citizens of oppressive regimes, they risk death in doing so. But still, The chief's kingdom and tales of Andy Reid's nectar are whispered about in the private spaces of Pyongyang as public fealty is still expressed toward the dear emperor. I am not saying or suggesting that perhaps too much was made of this football victory. As a Jets fan, I'm sure I would say stupid things if the Jets won, if they were, you know, the last of the 32 teams to lose, which is basically what the Super Bowl champion is. So... I shouldn't judge so much. That would be a courtroom, not a kingdom, wouldn't it? So I say, go ahead, define yourself as a nation and assert that your nation has achieved some sort of heretofore unconceivable, inconceivable mind share that you are chief, if you will, among the other established nations. Perfectly accurate, perfectly reasonable. Sip, sip, Kansas City chief fan. Sip from the chalice of perfection. Conquer your enemies and let the lamentations of their radio announcers play like elaborate symphonies to your ears. This is your moment. Your moments cannot be understated. There is no downplaying the world-changing feats that you have achieved. Or maybe Jimmy Garoppolo kind of stinks in the clutch. There's that too. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST's associate producer. She EQ'd and filtered my interview, so all the Oregons became Oregons. The gun control filter is now available in Nevada. Daniel Schrader is the GIST's producer. He is the spark that lit the tinder, and the tinder became a roaring conflagration that shone a light that became, for peoples of this great nation, something to hearken to. The GIST. We are the podcast that planted a flag in the apex of the nadir of the trench of the pinnacle of the vertex, only to find a no-flag planting sign there. But we also planted that sign, so that is something. Oompa-dapuru-dupuru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>